There was a time not that long ago that if you were a Republican legislature and you defied a court order, it was bad for your politics. Within the Republican Party now, violating court orders, breaking criminal laws makes you more popular, right? So if you're an Alabama legislator, of course you're defying the court order. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the rule of law in the Supreme Court. And I am Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover some of those things at the magazine. Here at Team Amicus, we really hope you enjoyed your summers and maybe some rest. And we hope you didn't miss our Slate Plus segments with Mark Joseph Stern too, too much. Uh, Mark is back this week. And we have lots to talk about, including Justice Alito's love letter to Dick Durbin, and why the so-called praying coach is seemingly unbothered about, well, coaching anymore. That conversation is for Slate Plus members only. If you would like to gain access to bonus segments, ad-free shows, and never hit a paywall at Slate.com, you can find out how to become a Slate Plus member at Slate.com slash Amicus Plus. And Slate Plus members, as always, thank you for your support. And thank all of you for your kind notes and feedback and thoughts about this summer's crop of books and authors that we featured in our Amicus book club season. Speaking of authors and book clubs, a little heads up that my own book, Lady Justice, is coming out in paperback form in just 10 days. Uh, We will have more on that next week, but please know you can pre-order it now if you want to get ahead of the game. Hey, same bright pink cover, same big big, big Barbenheimer energy. But this week, we want to leap into what's about to become the 2023 Supreme Court term with a little bit of a jolt about voting rights and democracy around the country. I'm noticing that despite four criminal indictments and a lot of shocking Supreme Court ethics revelations over the course of recent weeks, there's still a lot of uh, nothing matters energy happening out there. Maybe Seeing both Donald Trump and Clarence Thomas suffer setbacks that would have been career terminating a decade ago, only to somehow rise from the ashes, cocooned in this weird cult that seems to love them more and more with each infraction, maybe that has something to do with it? And while that feeling of hopelessness and helplessness in the face of rampant lawlessness is totally understandable, it's not actually a workable plan. So we wanted to think of this week's show as the cure, and if it's not a straight-up cure, at least it's a compass for navigating the maelstrom of current voting and election law news that is only going to grow and grow in the coming months. Because, my friends, efforts to set aside elections and subvert democracy did not stop in the fall of 2020. In fact, we're still litigating the results of that election in January 6 cases. We're also somehow still litigating an Alabama vote suppression case that was presumably resolved last spring at the Supreme Court. We're in the midst of an effort to impeach a Wisconsin state Supreme Court justice for having opinions in an election map case. And there are efforts around the country to suppress direct democracy whenever abortion or LGBTQ rights appear on the ballot. Those cases have to be fought and won. 
And our guest today has fought and won a whole lot of them. Mark Elias is the founding partner of Elias Law Group, a law firm committed to supporting voting rights. He's a nationally recognized expert in campaign finance, voting rights, and redistricting law. And he's represented the DNC, the Biden campaign, and countless other political groups. He's also been involved in some of the landmark and surprising recent voting rights victories at the Supreme Court. So yes, Mark wins a lot, and he keeps winning in the face of more and more nationwide efforts to suppress the vote. So Mark, welcome back to Amicus for this Everything Everywhere All at Once edition of the show. Thank you for having me. I think that um, the very short elevator pitch that I just offered for you to give us today is to just help us understand both the map of vote suppression around the country the different tools that are being deployed, and maybe the timeline headed into the 2024 election. So that's no small ask. I hope you're caffeinated up. I'm ready to roll. Okay. So let's start with Alabama, because um, this is, uh, you wrote about it this past week. It's astounding. Um, Alabama's got a racially unconstitutional map, I put this in the nothing matters, LOL, bucket that's been filling up over the summer. The state just straight up seems to be nullifying the result in Allen versus Milligan. That was the Supreme Court decision, uh, a kind of surprising decision, upholding a lower court's ruling that struck down Alabama's new congressional map for failing to comply with Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And now we have Alabama's Republican-controlled state legislator just le- legislature just flat out refusing to enact a new map, uh, and it's shocking. Is this what? What are we calling this? Nullification, shruggy emoji, constitutional crisis? <laughs> I think it is um, the modern day equivalent of George Wallace standing in front of the schoolhouse doors. Now. There's good news and bad news in that. Let me start with the good news. The good news is that eventually George Wallace got moved from the schoolhouse doors. And likewise here, you know, what I've been saying since the Supreme Court uh, ruled in favor of the plaintiffs uh, in Alabama, the state of Alabama has been given the opportunity an order, so more than an opportunity, more than an invitation, an order to draw a compliant map, a map that creates two rather than one majority black district. But if the legislature refuses to do so, which they have, the court is just going to draw its own map. And they've already taken the steps to do that. So the good news is there will be a lawful map in time for 2024. But I think I think you need to take a step back and realize that what happened in Alabama was, was pretty extraordinary. Um, Alabama drew a map that violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, a law passed in 1965, amended in 1982. The test for Section 2 violations has been pretty well settled since the 1980s, yet Alabama violated it. How clearly did they violate it? Well, a three-judge panel consisting of two judges appointed by former President Trump and a third judge who I think was originally appointed by a Republican president and then elevated by a Democratic president, they unanimously agreed it violated Section 2. 
Alabama then, in a cynical effort, said, well, you know what? We think we think we could go to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court won't care that it clearly violates this test that has been in place since the mid-1980s. And the Supreme Court didn't. The Supreme Court said, yep, that's the test. That is the test that we've had since the mid-1980s. It's still the test today. And Alabama, you now need to go comply with this court order. And then what happens is what you described. And it's really astounding. If anyone thought the days of states like Alabama just openly defying court orders were behind us, they're wrong. And so that's the troubling part, is that there was a time not that long ago that if you were a Republican legislature and you defied a court order, it was bad for your politics. Within the Republican Party now, violating court orders, breaking criminal laws makes you more popular, right? So if you're an Alabama legislator, of course you're defying the court order. <laughs> like what, what would be better for your base than that? So that's our problem. And, and I don't know if you read the reporting. Joan Biskupic had a piece in CNN on Friday, which essentially says that the Alabama legislature just thinks that they can flip Kavanaugh, that they just read his little carve out, you know, saying, well, there's a timestamp, actually, and, uh, you know, remediation of racial disparities is somehow, you know, going to evaporate. And so they're just counting on kicking it back and flipping Justice Kavanaugh. And I, and I think I have two questions for you, Mark. One is, a, how cynical is that? I mean, it's pretty cynical to say, well, it's been a couple months, so we think racism is over uh, in map making. But I think the, the the greater question I have is, really? Like, that's that's the pretext here? So I think what's interesting, and I, I, I haven't settled on an answer, and it may be that there are different answers for different people in the Alabama team. But I think there are two possible theories as to what they're doing. One, which you just articulated, which is that they have a long shot legal theory that basically is an extension of their original legal theory, which is the Supreme Court will just side with us because they'll side with us, right? So like we're going to give Justice Kavanaugh another opportunity to just side with us on whatever cockamamie theory that they think. That's, that's kind of option A. And that's really cynical. Option B is in some ways more dangerous for democracy, and it's what I'm positing, which is that, no, they actually don't think they're going to flip Justice Kavanaugh, but they think that the political theater of being in defiant of a court order redounds to their benefit, you know, that they think that aligning themselves with an indicted president is to their benefit. I mean, you hear Republicans say Donald Trump gets stronger by being criminally indicted. I mean, think about that for a second. So if you take that logic, and this is what I fear we're starting to see around the country. I mean, just to be clear to your litany earlier of things still being litigated, add the Republican candidates who lost in the election in Arizona, they're still litigating the 2022 election. Like, like in the Republican Party, there is now a benefit to be gained by never acknowledging that you've lost and by using the loss of litigation as further proof that you were right somehow. So it's, it's kind of interesting because I think, 
I don't disagree with your incredibly dispiriting thesis that the coin of the realm is lawlessness, right? And that that it, it's of itself yeah, is correct. the capital that you are drawing down. I guess I'm really curious about how the Supreme Court survives this as an institution, right? And 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 yeah. if I am to put the, the the fairest construction on the critique of the ethics conversation, it's you're trying to delegitimize the Supreme Court. You're trying to delegitimize the Supreme Court. You say, you know, you think people should have ethics rules, but you just really hate Dobbs. This is the mirror image of that, Mark, right? This is Alabama doing the same thing, which is, yeah, no, suck it. Supreme Court, we don't care what you say. And it seems to me that if... Your larger theory is that the lawlessness is the point. This is coming from all sides. Yeah. I mean, look, I, you know, I have no sympathy for the position the Supreme Court finds itself in. You know, they they made a series of choices and decisions. Some were decisions in the judicial sense, some were choices in the administration of the court sense. Um, that, you know, they are reaping the the effects of. You know, I am always, I talk often when I talk to law students, and I'll try not to get too deep into this, when I talk to law students, I, I, I oftentimes focus them on a couple of cases from the Great Depression, um, one involving whether or not Minnesota could pass a essentially a bank holiday on foreclosures of mortgages. Minnesota just decided that banks could no longer foreclose on farms in Minnesota during the Great Depression. This violated prior Supreme Court precedent and the tenor of the Supreme Court at the time. But it was clear that the Supreme Court could either change its precedent or Minnesota would still not allow people to foreclose on mortgages. So they changed their precedent. And that line of cases oftentimes gets cited along with this notion that the Supreme Court doesn't have an army, it doesn't have the ability to enforce its decrees, it just it, it is only by the force of persuasion. But in some ways, the current Supreme Court has squandered so much of its goodwill, so much of its, you know, its ability to persuade by the kind of the herky-jerky nature of its treatment of precedent, particularly in Dobbs, but not only in Dobbs. You know, the affirmative action case, they can say they didn't overrule uh, prior precedent, but it's very hard to see that. Um, some of the jurisdictional questions about, you know, why they heard that Colorado case that seems to be a little bit contrived. The coach where was the coach from? Coach Kennedy, uh, uh, Washington State, yeah. Now looks also like it might have been uh, a, a, a bit uh, contrived. So so the Supreme Court kind of made its bed here. But I agree with you that once it does that, it's going to get it from all sides, right? Like the right wing is going to look at it and be like, okay, maybe you are really political. And if that's the case, good for us. <laughs> you know, so... Time now for a brief break to hear from some of our sponsors. Let's return now to my conversation with election and voting litigator Mark Elias. I, I want to just pull on what you said about Alabama because you make the point writing this week that the exact same game is playing out in Louisiana, in Georgia, in Florida. We had a Florida court ruling uh, against uh, maps that were pushed by Governor DeSantis last week. I mean, I think what you're going to tell me is in every one of those, Georgia, you know, Louisiana, Florida, wherever it is happening, 
it's the same thing. The lawlessness is its own end in itself. But I also want to give you a chance, and maybe that's not true in those other jurisdictions, but I also want to give you a chance to just help listeners whose eyes just glaze over when they hear about <laughs> redistricting to give them a sense of why this matters in the most concrete possible terms, Mark. Like, this is not just about maps. <laughs> this is about democracy. So I want to kind of have you put it to us in a way that makes us realize we all have skin in this game. Yeah. So it matters because how you draw maps defines to a alarming degree in this country how you are represented. You know, as a practical matter with the with the partisanship and the polarization of the electorate combined with computer technology, um, uh, artificial intelligence, big data, all of that, people are able now to draw maps that will perform in favor of one party or the other, basically 100% of the time, okay? And so how those maps are drawn, where you put the pen, whether you zig or zag a certain place, tells you whether or not someone is going to have be in a district that is safely Democratic, safely Republican, or is a swing district that allows people to elect candidates based on you know uh, other considerations. But the other thing about it that everyone needs to care about is that that same power, that same ability can deprive minority voters of the ability to elect candidates of choice almost 100% of the time because they are minority they are a minority right so when you are a minority community the majority if they are able to draw the maps without any guardrails you will always wind up on the losing end so in 1965 we made a as a national consensus we had a national consensus that we need to do something about this and we need to make sure that minorities are not always on the losing end of voting laws and redistricting laws and that is a fundamental tenant of American democracy ever since Ronald Reagan reauthorized the Voting Rights Act and expanded it it was reauthorized in 2006 98 to 0 in the Senate George Bush signed it the business community business round table endorsed it. Walmart led the charge to endorse it. And what's happened since then, and this is where it ties to democracy in at a really, really deeper level. What's happened since then is that Republicans now oppose the Voting Rights Act 100% of the time. Now, I want you to, I'm going to play a thought experiment with all of you in the audience. I want you to think back and to the, to the January 6th hearings that time. And I want you to think about who was the most pro-democracy, moderate Republican in Congress. That person voted against the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, right? They all voted against the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. They all voted against the Freedom to Vote Act. They all voted against the For the People Act. There are more Republicans in the House today with an F rating from the NRA, then support voting rights. So the thing you need to understand, Dahlia, and your audience needs to understand, is that the you can be a Republican in good standing and be free trade or fair trade. You can be a Republican in good standing and even oppose the NRA. The one thing you can't be is in favor of voting rights. So Brad Rassenberger, great, he didn't commit uh, treason. He supported SB 202, which was a dramatic voter suppression bill. 
Rusty Bowers, really glad he didn't reconvene the legislature in Arizona to do whatever it is Donald Trump wanted. He passed law after law after law that suppressed voting rights in Arizona. And so we need to care about redistricting because it is on the knife edge of a larger anti-democracy movement within the Republican Party. Yeah. So so what you are saying, and I think it's of a piece what you were saying initially about the lawlessness, but that you can be anti-violent, bloody insurrection and still be completely for vote suppression. Absolutely. <laughs> that, that, is, that is the MO here. Yeah. So here's the thing that the Republicans, I think, have really figured out. So I'm going to give a confession that in law school, my favorite class was civil procedure. Like, like property seemed all that like way too complicated, you know, torts and and contracts. Like, like I didn't relate to it. But like when I met civil procedure, I realized, okay, I'm back in my element. When I was a kid, like a child, and there was a new board game. This is like we had board games. We didn't have computer games. We had board games. And like you got a new board game and you'd unwrap it and you'd open the box and then you'd like dump all the pieces out. Everybody else would be like opening the board and choosing pieces. I got my hands on the instructions, right? Because if you know the rules, you can affect the outcome, right? If Just think about it this way. Like if you could design, if you, you could go right now, we're at the beginning of football season. If you went to a team and said, you guys could design any rules you want. You could change the number of points a touchdown is worth. You could decide, you know, you you have 10 downs, right? You could design the rules however you want, and it would apply to every game that that takes place in the NFL. That team would have a huge advantage. And so what Republicans have realized is that the rules of voting matter. Where How you structure the rules of voting create winners and losers, and if you are an anti-majoritarian party that no longer competes for a for a popular vote majority, your only game is in figuring out how you change those rules to gain a majority power with a minority of the vote. So that's why you gerrymander and deprive black voters of fair districts in Alabama. It's why you are a vote suppressor. And the where that leads you Okay, which is where we are in 2023, is that first you do it and you're kind of ashamed you're doing it, right? You kind of do it and like when you get caught, you apologize. First you do it and like if you benefit from it, you're George W. Bush. Like you kind of don't like the fact that you didn't win a majority of the popular vote, but you're willing to take the power. But eventually you fetishize it. You actually celebrate the fact of how clever you are, that you can rig the rules to prevent people from voting and win elections that way. And then before you know it, you are celebrating people who are getting indicted for having tried to rig the rules to stay in power. And so to me, it's all of one one piece. Um, I, I just have to because I have now heard you say it. I just have to tell listeners who didn't go to law school that loving civ pro civil procedure is like admitting to being like the French horn person. Like man, that yes. is that is yeah. some next level. I say with all the please French horners, do not write me angry letters. My son is a French What about horn the person. civil procedure professors? Do you think they're going to write you? Oh yeah. No, I'm I'm in it I'm I'm so canceled in the world of civ pro. Um I want to I want to Move to Wisconsin because I think 
this is the point, right? And and you know, we we've talked on the show in uh, prior times about you know Louisiana legislators who aren't allowed to talk. Wisconsin's a little even for Wisconsin next level, right? Where you have a threatened impeachment of a newly elected state Supreme Court justice who won, uh, you know, fair and square uh, at the ballot box. She's yet to hear a case, and I put this. I put it in the bucket with, you know, North Carolina's Anita Earls. I put it uh, in the bucket with attempts to remove state prosecutors, often black women uh, around the country. This is something Sherilyn Eiffel's talked about on the show. But this is a little bit what you're describing, right? Which is just saying, oh, my God, we had an election. The justice, you know, game-changing justice is seated. And because we can't let her hear a redistricting case, we're just going to impeach her. It is that kind of absolute celebration of we hold the levers of power. Anything we do is okay, whether it's lawful or not, is immaterial, right? That's there. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is the work. I mean, like, you know, it's hard to compare terrible things. But I think in some ways this is the logical uh, extreme, like the logical conclusion of it all. Because the point you just made is the one that I make, I want to make sure every listener hears. She hasn't heard a case. Like literally, like not, I'm not defending any of the other examples you used, but they all involved at least the pretext that the person had done something. <laughs> Here, she hasn't done anything. Like they just want to impeach her because they think she may do something. I mean, it's it's quite Orwellian if you think about it. Do you want to link everything we've just talked about to efforts, for instance, in Ohio, <laughs> ballot initiatives, you know, efforts to, again, I, we hold the levers. And so we're going to quash direct democracy around ballot initiatives and referenda and, and and this is, you know, for, for listeners who weren't paying attention this summer, this was an Ohio citizen-led abortion rights amendment that has just faced unbelievable efforts to sort of stick a fork in it. And this is the answer, right? This is, this is I think you're going to tell me this is another play in a playbook that has 10 billion pages. There's always going to be another play. And now we're just going to make it impossible to get something on the ballot. And if it comes on the ballot, we'll just change the wording so it means the opposite of what it says. Yeah, something I wrote the other day about, you know, why is it that the Republican lawyers seem to lose so much in court, right? I mean, like, look at last term. They lost on the ISL case, the independent state legislature doc, uh, theory case out of North Carolina. They lost on Allen v. Milligan. And, you know, I had a Republican lawyer say to me in the advance of the independent state legislature ruling, where I was I was talking to them, I'm like, your theory kind of like doesn't make any sense. Like, it's kind of like a bumper sticker more than it is like a legal doctrine. Like, you guys just haven't put any thought into like where, where this begins and ends. And he said to me, he said, we don't need to, we have the votes. And so now in that case, he meant we have the votes on the Supreme Court, which turns out he didn't have. But I think that one of the reasons why Republican lawyers are, don't do better in court is because there is very much a mindset of what you just described. Like in 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 you know in Wisconsin, it's like well we have the votes to impeach her, so it doesn't really matter if we have a good reason. You know in uh, in Ohio, it's oh well 
we have the votes on the, on the you know, in the, in the legislative ballot review board or whatever it's called. And, and so there's like a laziness, an intellectual laziness that kind of like goes with it because they have in a willingness to exercise power shamelessly. That's kind of where the analysis begins and ends for them. Plus they celebrate loss. That's the other weird thing. They celebrate loss as like a proof that somehow they are victim. Right. So, so this leads inexorably, I'm afraid, to former President Donald J. Trump, right? Because I think at some point, what some of the sort of ennui and some of the nihilism that I am picking up this summer comes from people who say he's been indicted multiple times, he will continue to be indicted he has already said he probably won't accept the results of the 2024 election unless he wins, which I guess at minimum makes him super consistent with the last few elections. And yet we keep saying, you know, this is solved by voting, right? Like as long as President Biden can win by, quote, a landslide, you know, it's okay. But what you're saying is you can lose democracy this way long before you get to that election. And that the people who are trying to break voting are the people who really kind of exult in the fact that elections don't matter. I mean, the election is not the point. And so I I think what I wanted you to think through with me is, A, this question of, does it matter that Donald Trump is being held to account in courtrooms around the country, civil and criminal? Does it matter that, I know you wrote a piece that broke my heart about the number of lawyers (laughs) who have helped him try to coup and what it means that they're being held to account. But then I think I want you to pan out. I Mark, my thing is I always ask these three-part Justice Breyer questions. I'm super sorry. You don't have to answer all three of these at once. But like, I do want you to pan out and answer this question for me of if you are going to, in fact, keep losing in court and it doesn't matter <laughs> because you're the Republicans and you can do it. Then, then what are we all doing here? What are we hoping for here? Yeah, so I think there's a short term and a long term. I think in the short term, it matters a lot. Like in the short term, the fact is that the courts have helped um, save democracy. You know, the fact is in that Alabama case, you know, the three judge panel that cited the case uh, included two judges appointed by Donald Trump. The Supreme Court rejected the independent state legislature theory. I'm not, by the way, an apologist for the courts. I'm definitely not an apologist for the Supreme Court. There's a lot more they got wrong than they got right. But on the core issues of voting and democracy, for now at least, the courts have held. The courts rejected 60-plus lawsuits that Donald Trump and his allies filed in the 2020 election. You know, grand juries have returned indictments. So the judicial system is the most functioning of a non-functioning political system. Now, the problem with that is that, number one, you can't you can't have a democracy where one party can't win, right? You can't have a democracy where if at any point the Republicans gain power, like you can't have a democracy where if the Republican candidate for president wins, like the Justice Department is no longer independent. You know, he, it's engaged in criminal, uh, in political prosecutions. Uh, you know, agencies are destroyed, whatever. Like you can't have a system that runs that way. It doesn't mean that for 2024, though, it doesn't matter. Like for 2024, 
you can have a system where the courts are holding and where voting matters enormously. The question is, you know, the courts are an imperfect solution, both because you know, the Supreme Court is not a reliable vote for democracy. It has so far been a reliable vote against the most extreme anti-democratic things. But, but you know, Dahlia, we could do a whole thing on Morvey Harper, but in some ways, Morvey Harper was very self-preservationist for the judiciary. So, like, I don't want to overstate what the courts have done, but but for now, they have held. But in the long run, the only way this is going to be solved is by a political culture change within the Republican Party. Oh, boy. I had promised listeners hope, and we are now hoping for a political culture change within a party that doesn't believe in the rule of law or democracy. In the long term. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying there is hope for 2024. Like, I am hopeful about 2024. I am hopeful about 2024 because the courts are striking down voter suppression laws. We have won in Alabama. We won in Florida. We have won in Louisiana. And we'll win in Louisiana, finally. We will win in Georgia. You know, you may see the Texas redistricting case go forward. And the voting cases, you know, Carrie Lake and her colleagues all lost their election contests in 2022. You know, Cochise County, which tried not to certify the election, they lost. So, like, we are still winning enough for democracy in 2024, and I am hopeful. When I say I, I, there's a long-term problem, it's like, what does this mean, though, for 2028, for 2030, for 2032? Like, at some point, this can't go on. We're going to pause for a quick break. More now from Mark Elias about defending democracy in the courts and litigating in a field that seems more and more comfortable with lawlessness. Do you have thoughts about the Section 3, 14th Amendment disqualification efforts? Um, I think that what, what was just filed by Crew and some folks in Colorado is a pretty serious effort to at least I don't know, lay down a marker about disqualifying Donald Trump for running for office? So look, Section 3, which is the clause that says that if you engage in insurrection or aid and comfort to the enemy, you can't basically be in federal or state office. It's real and it's important and it can't get written out of the Constitution. I've, I've argued before that Section 5 of the Constitution, which gives Congress the authority to effectuate the the equal protection and due process clauses is also real, which, by the way, is like a whole other episode about Shelby County, where I feel like that got read out of the Constitution. Um, but that's also real. You know, we the 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 courts and the and the public have tended to at times sort of ignore parts of the Constitution that don't feel relevant to them. But Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment is real; like it says what it says. And uh, it, you know, I believe that Donald Trump. Uh, has violated it. I think that that I think he is barred from holding office. By the way, I wrote in early January, in shortly after January 6, 2021, that I think there are dozens of members of Congress who I think are are ineligible under Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment. I think the the thing that is that is going to play out here that I don't really know what the answer to is is. Yes, I believe it's real. Yes, I believe it is a serious effort. Yes, I believe it is self-executing. So, which means that it goes forward. And I am worried, I am worried that people are tying the criminal case to it, right? Criminal 
cases, as you know, are unicorns in the American legal system. Right to counsel, right to a unanimous jury, presumption of innocence, right against self-incrimination. Um, you know, jury can't even take into account that, it, that someone didn't testify. Uh Burden beyond a reasonable doubt. Like the the criminal system is set up to preserve people's liberty. Okay, we don't need that level of certainty for any other aspect of our legal system, and that includes Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment. So I want to make sure that we don't couple those two together. It is a lower threshold to not be able to run for president than it is to be thrown in prison. Okay. That said, I think that serious thinkers, including Crew and the good work they're doing, need to figure out the sequencing of this and the timing of it. And I think you're right. I think the case in Colorado lays down a marker, whether it is the final marker, you know, I I I don't know. You know, I do a lot of work in my own area around voting rights, around sequencing, you know. When is the right time to bring the first case? When is the right time to bring the second case? Where do you bring the first? Where do you bring the second? I just hope that the people who are filing these cases are talking to one another so that there is a sort of a logic to the who, what, when, and where. So it's interesting. I think that there is a through line in what you're saying, which is Alabama Republicans simply refuse to effectuate what they've been ordered to do because they have the power, right? This is, you know, Wisconsin legislature going to try to impeach a justice who's never heard a case because they can. And I'm trying to construct the model for what you do, <laughs> because it's not we're going to win for sure. These are purely aspirational things, right? I mean, I think what you're saying about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is this isn't the Hamilton electors. This isn't like a fanciful thing that we think we can do. What you are describing, and I think what you do in, you know, the cases that you file is not, <laughs> this is a foregone conclusion. It feels rearguard to me, right? We're just trying to shore up the Voting Rights Act. And I guess my question is, there always feels to be an asymmetry there, right? Because if you're Ed Blum, you know, just saying, now I'm, I've dismantled affirmative action, and within weeks, they're going after... DEI programs. It's just wish casting, constant legal wish casting. And what you're doing feels like the opposite of that. But I want you to tell me what it is. <laughs> it's not wish casting. For better or worse. And I think there are times where people think it's better and there are times where people think it's worse. Um, I am a very practical lawyer. You know, I am not, I don't fight cases for aspirational reasons. This is not to, by the way, uh, say that people shouldn't, but it's just not what I do. Um, I am a very practical lawyer. Um, my goal is to target voting laws that impact significant numbers of voters, particularly that disadvantage black, brown, and young voters. You know, if you go back to my thing about civil procedure, I know the rules of voting matter. So if I know that in Georgia, in the 2020 primary election, if you were in the six metro counties, and you were in a precinct 
that was 90% or more white, you waited in line an average of six minutes to vote. And if you were in a precinct that was 90% or more black, you waited in line 51 minutes to vote. Okay, that is a very practical difference, right? The difference between six minutes and 51 minutes is the difference between no line and line. It is also the difference between benefiting from food and water while waiting in line or not. So we sued to tackle the problem of long lines, and we sued to tackle the problem of bans on line warming. Uh, by the way, I, you know, contrary to what some people on the other side think, I don't only sue red states. I'm suing New York over their line warming ban. I'm suing Michigan over their ban on allowing free rides to the polls. So I try to take on voter suppression laws that are impacting voters because it is a national tragedy in this country that we have so many people who are deterred from voting. You know, let me give you a statistic that just came out. You know, in the mail-in vote system, which is disproportionately used by Democrats, but, you know, whatever, the federal government puts out this report, the Eves Report. It's a national survey. 1.5% of all people who voted by mail had their ballots rejected. That's a national tragedy. No one listening to this thinks that 1.5% of people who voted by mail committed fraud. No one who's listening to this thinks that 0.15% of people who voted by mail committed fraud. And so I've sued Democratic and Republican secretaries of state over one of the big reasons why they're rejected, which is signature matching, which is when an untrained person looks at the signature on file with the registration and compares it to the absentee ballot envelope. And in the places we've won, we've dramatically lowered the rejection rates of lawful ballots. These are people who have done everything right. You know who complained about that? Donald Trump. Donald Trump complained on the tape to Brad Rassenberger about the fact that we sued Georgia. And after it was clear we we're going to win, Kemp settled with us. And as a result, the rejection rate for mail-in ballots dropped. You know, we sued Georgia for, um, 2022 on behalf of the Warnock campaign because the state had banned voting on the Saturday after Thanksgiving. As a result of our lawsuit, 70,000 Georgians were able to vote. So the litigation that my firm has brought in Florida and in Texas and in Louisiana and in Georgia about districting, these will have real impacts. You know, the, the real impact will be that Black voters will have another district to vote in. So that's the work I focus on. It is not the biggest, you know, the biggest cases but in my, from my standpoint, they are the most impactful for real voters. So here's where I want to land. Um, I just promised our listeners that this was not going to be, you know, an LOL, nothing matters. It's all over show. And one of our guiding principles on Amicus is that knowledge is power. And if we're going to swap out, you know, learned helplessness or terror, in the face of lawlessness for really engaged, inclusive political democracy, then people need to know what they need to know. And uh, I'm sure you get this question all the time, Mark. I get it all the time, but I'm going to let you answer it for our listeners. What do folks need to know? What do they need to do in order to solve for Everything we've just described, including a culture that more and more rewards lawlessness. And I, and I think the way I want to ask the question ultimately is, you and I were talking right before we started taping about how these conversations, if we are suppressing confidence in voting, 
we are losing, right? We can't have conversations in which the takeaway is, you know what I need to do is just pour myself a drink and not vote. People need to get engaged and what they can do and why they probably shouldn't wait till November of 2024 to do it. Yeah, so look, there are, number one, our election systems work, you know, so people should vote because their vote will count. And if they don't vote, then their vote won't count. Okay, so the thing, the biggest thing I tell people to do is make sure you are registered and make sure you know how to vote and vote and tell your friends that they need to register to vote and that they need to vote. Okay, so that's like, that's like first, second, and third. The, the second thing, though, which is trying to solve the larger problem that I said I don't have a solution to, is this is what everyone can do to solve that problem. Everyone listening to this has a town square. Now, you have a really big town square because you have this podcast that gets listened to by thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. So that's like a really big town square. But everyone's got one. Right, it may be your social media, it may be your uh, your bridge club, it may be your dinner table, it may be the lunchroom break uh, conversation that you have. But everyone's got a town square, and everyone needs to tackle the problem of democracy, not hide from it. What do I mean? So you know, it's what you do every day, right? Because you like literally are writing and talking and speaking out about the importance of participating in the political process, having opinions, voting, not letting the not letting the bad guys do things without anyone noticing. I think for a lot of everyday Americans, though, they would just as soon not have the conversation. You know, they'd rather when their crazy uncle says, the election was stolen from Donald Trump, they'd rather just like change the topic. And so I'm going to ask people to do the opposite. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you to have that conversation, have it respectfully, but stand up in your town square and say, it is not okay to suppress people's right to vote. It is not okay for Alabama to be disregarding a court order to prevent black voters from exercising political power when a court has ordered them to. It is not okay for the state of Ohio to try to frustrate a ballot initiative that clearly has overwhelming support. And it is certainly not okay for the uh, Wisconsin legislature because they don't like who won a free and fair election, an election that was a landslide that nobody is arguing was not accurate, an accurate will of the voters. It is not okay for them to use and abuse their power to impeach her, to frustrate the judicial system of the state of Wisconsin. Stand up and say it's not okay. Tell your neighbors it's not okay. Tell your classmates, your customers, your clients, your coworkers that that's not okay. Because when I say we need to change the culture This is how we're going to change the culture. We're not going to change the culture through the courts. I can win a case here and make it a little better, make it a little worse, make it a lot better, hopefully. But we're only going to change the culture if the people who are are proponents of democracy are as committed and as loud and as willing to confront authoritarianism and anti-democratic fervor as the people on the other side. 
You're reminding me, Mark, of one of my favorite interviews with Carol Anderson, a historian, who, in the face of massive, massive voter uncertainty during the pandemic, reminded me and everybody else that we should vote the way Black people have voted in America for a long time, which is expect the lines, expect to be insulted, expect to be challenged, and do it anyway. And I kind of feel like yours is the political version of that, which is there are a lot of people who have been fighting for centuries, and now is not the time to stand down. Mark Elias is founding partner of Elias Law Group, a law firm committed to supporting voting rights. He is also a nationally recognized expert on campaign finance, voting rights, redistricting law, and litigation. And if you are not already reading it, please read the progressive advocacy platform, Democracy Docket, where some of the issues we've talked about and much, much more is covered tirelessly every day. Thank you, Mark, for both your straight into the veins uh, uh, opium and also your absolute pragmatism and realism about what it's going to require to make this thing work. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. Thank you so much for your letters and your questions and your thoughts. You can keep in touch with us at amicus at slate.com, or you can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio at Slate, and Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. We'll be back with a little extra episode of Amicus celebrating the launch of my book, Lady Justice, in paperback next week. Until then, take good care.